listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. We're looking at uh, the story that comes from our gospel reading of the week. It has to do with uh, Jesus and a miracle that is performed on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, the passage of the week officially is found in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, But today, I'm going to still preach the same story, but we're going to borrow from the Gospel of John. Uh, But it's the same story. I just want to borrow from John's account. And I'm going to be intermeshing it anyway. But both Matthew, John, and Mark talk about this same story. But they give their own little slant to it. They kind of present their own little details to it. And I, 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 I like John's, I like John, I like the Gospel of John, period. Um, but that's what we're going to be looking at. And the title of the sermon is just simply, "'Twas a dark and stormy night." So let's look at the passage, and then we'll, we'll jump right into it. John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they wanted to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. Amen. I want to begin just giving you a little historical note just to kind of whet your appetite as we're going to dive into this story. True story, in in the year 1986, there was a fisherman that was standing on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and He was fishing right there on the side of the sea. It had been a year where there was a drought there in Israel, so the water level was much lower than it normally would have been. And as he was standing on the shore, he looked down through the water, underneath the water, and he saw what looked like some type of wooden structure. And it was submerged in the mud and the embankment below, underneath the water. And he could tell that it looked like hand-cut wood. So he decided, I need to alert some folks. This may be something important. And somehow or another, a group of archaeologists from, I believe it was Hebrew University in Tel Aviv, they went to his location there, and they started to examine this. And they started to gingerly kind of like, work with it, and, and they began to realize what they were looking at was an ancient fishing boat. And because evidently 2,000 years ago, it must have gotten submerged under a mudslide, otherwise the water would have completely disintegrated all of this wood. But the mud on top of it must have protected it. And they knew they had to handle this with great care. 
And also, if they were to just pull this boat right out, I mean, it's, first of all, it's going to fall apart if they just pull it right out. They've got to be very careful. But they also understood that if we just expose it to oxygen in its current condition, it's going to very quickly disintegrate. So they were able to come up with a plan. They uh, encased it in polyurethane. And you can look at all of this online. I'm sure there are documentaries on YouTube and stuff. But they were able to finally, in one piece, intact, they were able to uh, lift this boat encased in this polyurethane, and they were able to bring it to a location where they were, uh, they went through a long process of applying chemicals and everything. And long story short, they preserved this thing. You can show the picture of, of this boat. And they dated this thing to 2,000 years ago. They call it the Jesus boat. Uh, it may or may not have anything to do with Jesus, but we do know that this boat would have been floating on the Sea of Galilee during the times of Peter and Andrew and James and John. And they analyzed it. It's made of 12 different kinds of wood. It was made with expert craftsmanship. You could still see like all of the nails and stuff. And so every time we take groups to Israel, we always take them to this little museum so they can see the Jesus boat up and close and personal. It holds about 12 to 13 people. And it's the exact kind of boat that these fishermen would have used that we read about in the New Testament. So, just a little bit of color for our story today. I thought you might be interested in seeing this. Well, Jesus and the Twelve are on the, somewhere on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's been a long day. It's actually the same day that Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fish and feeds this huge multitude of people. It's the same day that this happens. But now everything's kind of over with and the crowds disperse. And um, it's getting late. It's getting dark. The sun is beginning to set. And so Jesus sends the 12 across the sea to go back home, to go back to Capernaum, which that would have been the quickest way to get there. The quickest way to get from that place to Capernaum would have been to just go by sea as the crow flies. It would have been about seven miles wide, seven miles across. The Sea of Galilee, we call it a sea. It's more like a lake. It's a small lake, like Lake Balboa, maybe a little bigger than Lake Balboa. But um, it's about 12 miles long and seven miles wide. And so the quickest way to get there as the crow flies would be just to, just to row across the shore straight to Capernaum. You could, you could definitely walk back to Capernaum. It just would have taken a lot more time. You, you would have had to go all the way around the northern shore of the sea. It would have taken a lot of time. So Jesus tells the 12, he says, you guys go ahead and get in the boat and start your way across. Don't worry about me. I'm going to stay behind. I got some stuff that I'm supposed to do. I'm going to go find a place and pray, and then we'll just see what happens. But you guys go on ahead. I'll catch up with you later. Now, does Jesus know what he's about to do? I think so. I think he's setting something up. But for all the disciples know, he's just, maybe he just wants time alone. He wants time alone with God. He's been known to do that. He'll go find a place and get alone with the Father. That's evidently what he wants to do. So let's just get in the boat. We'll go across Capernaum, and he'll catch up with us in the morning. So they start their way across. The sun sets, and darkness comes over the land, just like the darkness we sung about. I love the fact that we sung about darkness because it goes right with what we're talking about today. And everything's pitch black. You've got you to understand, this is before all of the light pollution we have. There was no cities lit up on the shore. Just natural light, which at, in the middle of the night, there wouldn't have been any natural light. 
And they may have had a couple lanterns or something. That's not going to give off any light. So it's dark. They start their way across the sea. And John tells us they get about halfway. They're about three or four miles into their journey. Let's just split the difference and call it three and a half miles. They're right in the middle of the sea. And just as they're making it to the halfway point, a windstorm whips up over the sea, which is not uncommon for the Sea of Galilee. You know, the topography around the sea, there's all these mountains and ridges, kind of like what we have here. But you've got all these little mountains and ridges, but there are gaps between them. And sometimes some of these, like a desert wind or, or something, will just shoot through those gaps and stir up the sea and cause some tumultuous waves and things like that. And that's exactly what happens. This windstorm uh, suddenly materializes. It happens very quickly. It suddenly materializes. And now the waves get increasingly choppier and choppier and, and more and more powerful. And the boat gets tossed to and fro. And, and the wind is just piercing their eyes. They can't hardly keep their eyes open. And on top of all of that, it's pitch black. They're disoriented. They can't see where they're going. They can't see where they are. They're completely confused in the middle of the sea, in the middle of a storm, in the middle of the night. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes to them. In the middle of the night, in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the sea, Jesus comes to them walking on the water, all nonchalant. You know, like this is a fairly dramatic situation. I mean, some of these guys are professional fishermen. Peter, James, John, Andrew. These guys have been on that sea virtually every day of their life since they were little boys. And they've been in the sea in the midst of a storm. But this is one of those uncommon storms where even a professional fisherman is not entirely comfortable with what's happening. This is life-threatening. At any point, this thing could turn disastrous. And so they're alarmed. And Jesus is just strolling across the sea. He comes to them in the middle of the night, walking on water. And their reaction is not, oh, look, it's Jesus. He's walking on the water. No, they're terrified. They're scared out of their minds. Matthew actually tells us they thought it was a ghost. Which, you know, we make light of it. But think about it. What are your options? You know, I mean, you're, you're, you, you, you don't have, you lost your bearings, you're disoriented, you can't see, you're afraid for your life, and all of a sudden you see a human figure walking on top of the waves. And it's a dark and stormy night, so they're frightened, they're crying out, they're saying it's a ghost. And in the middle of the dark and stormy night, the voice of Jesus is heard. It's me. Don't be afraid. And man, that had to be just a flood of relief. And they say, Jesus, you scared us. Come into the boat. And it says Jesus got into the boat, and the moment he sat down, boom, they hit land. I mean, remember, they were in the middle of the sea. They, John says, he's very careful to tell us, they had gone three or four miles. They're in the middle of the sea. Jesus walks on water gets into the boat, sits down. The moment he sits down, immediately they reach their final destination. What a strange night. What a strange story. But what I want you to understand, first of all, is that uh, this is not about Jesus just doing arbitrary tricks. And it's not even just simply what we would call a miracle, even though it is miraculous. But that's not the word John uses. John actually never 
uses the word miracle. In fact, did you know that the Gospel of John, out of all of the four Gospel authors, John is the one that tells us about the least amount of performed miracles. He only includes seven. That's it. Seven miracles. But he doesn't call them miracles. John calls them signs. And what is a sign? A sign is something that's pointing you ahead to something else. This is the fifth sign in John's Gospel. And he intentionally, deliberately includes this story because it's a sign that he's wanting to point you to. He's wanting to use this to point you to something. And what is this sign meant to point us to? That's what we're going to work on this morning together. Now, in order for us to understand what this sign is and what it's pointing us to, John assumes that you and I already know three things going into the story. There are three things that we need to know if we're going to know what John wants us to see. And he assumes that we already know them, even though I think most Christians don't. Number one, John assumes that you already know something about how the ancient Jewish people viewed the sea. First of all, the Jews were not seafaring people. They weren't like always like going onto the sea and stuff, like the Phoenicians and the Greeks and even like the Egyptians crafting these ships and sailing the deep blue yonder and exploring everything. The Israelites were like, no, we're good. We're just going to stay right here. You know, and aside from like the fishermen on the Lake of Galilee, they're not really trying to create all these large ships and explore the world like Magellan. The Israelites were like, we're good. Part of that was because of where they were located, but a huge part of that also is that in very early ancient Hebrew thought, they learned to view the sea with dread. And actually, the, the sea for the ancient Israelites became emblematic of the source of evil, the origin of evil and chaos. All that is evil in the world emerges out of the sea. We actually read something about that even in our psalm for the day yesterday, in Psalm 74, where it talks about God slaying the, the dragons and the beasts of the sea. But this is all aligned with Hebrew thought. They viewed the sea with dread. They saw it as a source of evil. That's why in the book of Revelation, which is a book all about signs, at the very end, when John writes about this new heavens and this new earth, that when Jesus comes back and, and makes everything right and the whole earth, the whole cosmos is going to be Eden-like and everything's going to be healed and restored and made right, uh, one of the ways John describes that and what it's going to be like is he says, and the sea shall be no more. But we aren't to take that literally. Like, oh man, there's not going to be any oceans. We're not going to be able to swim with the dolphins. That's not what John is saying. But he's assuming that you know how the ancient Jews understood that the sea is an emblem of the origin and source of evil. So when John says, and the sea shall be no more, it's a metaphorical way of saying that when Jesus returns and all is made right, even our capacity to generate evil is going to be eradicated. So that's the first thing that John assumes you already know going into the story. The second thing John assumes is that you remember something that Job says in the book of Job when he speaks of God trampling on the waves of the sea. Notice the language there. It's not just simply God walks on the waves of the sea. God tramples on the waves of the sea because the sea was viewed with dread. It was a symbol of the source of evil. So, so Job is making a very keen theological statement by saying God tramples on the waves of the sea. But perhaps more significant is the third thing that John assumes. 
John assumes you also are familiar with Daniel's vision in Daniel 7. Remember in Daniel 7, Daniel has this really fantastic dream. He falls asleep, and in his dream, he sees the sea. And it's a dark and stormy night. And the waves are chaotic. It's tumultuous, and the wind is blowing. It's a dark and stormy night. And in the middle of his dream, as he's looking out at the sea, these four beasts, you remember? These four monsters come up out of the sea. And these monsters that you see coming up out of the sea in his dream They're later identified as four empires, four superpowers that dominate the earth. And they subjugate and oppress everyday, ordinary human beings. And these four empires are Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And all of that's there in Daniel 7 for you to discern. But at the end of the dream there in Daniel 7 we see another figure called one like a son of man. And later on, hundreds of years later, Jesus will adopt that title for himself. He'll announce, I'm the son of man Daniel was talking about. But we read about this son of man figure who comes up from the earth into the clouds of heaven and he's received before the ancient of days. Think of Jesus' ascension. And to him is given dominion and authority over all those empires, all of those beasts, all of those nations. They are now serving the Son of Man. So this vision is just, the message of it is that the Son of Man will prevail over these empires and he will peaceably rule the nations. So remember those three things. Remember how the ancient Jews viewed the sea. Remember what Job says, God tramples on the waves of the sea. And remember Daniel's vision of these four beastly empires who ultimately are subservient to the Son of Man who is lifted up and is given authority and dominion over all. And with that in mind, let's now return to John 6. And I want to show you something very interesting that John does. But it's a few verses earlier. We didn't read this part. It's at the very beginning where John is giving us the setting. And I want us to look very carefully, look very closely at what John says in verse 1 of chapter 6. Look at this on the screen. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. Let's just leave that up there for a couple minutes. Now this, this looks like a throwaway line. John's like, oh, by the way, also, sometimes people call it the Sea of Tiberias, but don't worry about that. It's not a throwaway line. Nothing happens by accident in the Gospel of John. If you remember my Easter sermon, where I talked about all of these Easter eggs that John buries, if you haven't heard the Easter sermon from whatever it was two two or three months ago, go back and listen to that. You're going to learn about how John writes his Gospel. He's a genius. He's an artist. And he's painting a portrait And there's all these little Easter eggs buried underneath the surface. And he'll just kind of give you a little bit of a hint, but he won't just come out and tell you what he's doing. He wants you to go digging. He wants you to go seeking and searching. And he wants you to be surprised and astounded by by his work. And one day day when I pass on, I'm going to go find John. I'm going to say, John, how long did it take you to, honestly, John, Be honest, how long did it take you to work on the Gospel of John? It would not surprise me for one moment if John said, I worked on that on and off for like 20 years. Just kept refining it. I'm like, I can tell. Because it's brilliant. 
And this is an example. You just read this and you're like, okay, he's just giving us the setting. Let's move on. It's not exactly what he's doing. He is giving you the setting, but he's also saying something he wants you to hang on to. And he wants you to connect it with those three things I just mentioned. He says, by the way, I want you to know the Sea of Galilee. Sometimes people call it the Sea of Tiberias. Who was Tiberius? Tiberius Caesar became the Roman emperor in A.D. 14, around the time Jesus would have been a teenager. And he reigned over Rome all the way through A.D. 37, so for 23 years. From the time Jesus was a teenager all the way through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and then even after that, for seven years into the church age, Tiberius Caesar was the center of the world. He was the most powerful man on the planet, and he ran the world with an iron thumb. But Tiberius was not just the name of the emperor, it was also the name of a city. Right there on the Sea of Galilee, there's a city that exists to this day called Tiberius. And it's where we take people when we go to Israel, and we stay there on the Sea of Galilee. We'll stay there in the city of Tiberius for about three nights. And there's nothing like waking up in the morning opening up your windows, and there's the Sea of Galilee. It's stunning. But that's where we stay. We stay in the city of Tiberias. Tiberias as a city was established in A.D. 20. This event we're reading about today took place around A.D. 28, something like that. So by the time that this story is being written, or or, uh, this story is happening, and John will write about it much later, Tiberias is a brand new city, It's been built by Herod Antipas, the grandson of Herod the Great. And Herod Antipas, he's like the client king of the Jews on behalf of Rome. So he's he's king, but he's really working for Tiberius. Tiberius is his boss. And so in order to please Tiberius, Herod Antipas decides he's going to build a city in his honor. So he builds a brand new Roman city called Tiberius right there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee next to all of these ancient Jewish villages, Bethsaida, Magdala, Capernaum. Well, right here is the city of Tiberius, this Roman city with its amphitheater and plaza and all of that. And he builds this city, and this is going to be the the new capital of Rome in the region of Galilee. And uh, the Roman army that would have been stationed in this area, they would have housed, they would have been housed in Tiberias. All of these Roman officials and aristocrats, they would have lived in Tiberias. All of these Gentiles pour into Tiberias, not so much the Jews. They want to stay away from Tiberias. It's it's not our city. But Herod names this brand new city after the emperor Tiberius. And that's the way of empire. That's one of the hallmarks of empire. It just swallows up everything. And so they even started to try to rename the sea after Tiberius. And I don't know about you, I hate it when they take these classic ballparks and football stadiums and some corporation somewhere purchases naming rights and slaps their logo on it and starts renaming it and calling it something else. I'm going to tell you, the Louisiana Superdome is always going to be the Louisiana Superdome. They can call it whatever they want. You probably feel the same way about Dodger Stadium. They can call it whatever they want. It's always going to be Dodger Stadium, right? But this is what the Roman Empire does and what every empire does. They're just beastly. They swallow up everything. And so Tiberius, his mark is everywhere. His name, his image, his likeness, everywhere you look, it's Tiberius this, Tiberius that. He's just swallowing up everything. 
And John wants you to notice that the empire even tries to name this historic sea after itself. So the empire is devouring up everything. It's a beast. And most people either sink or swim in the sea of empire. You're either going to be a winner or a loser. That's it. Those are your options. Most people sink or swim, but not Jesus. Jesus just walks right on top of it. And that's what John's trying to point you to. This is an anti-imperial sign. And when John is telling this story, he assumes that you're going to know something about how the Jews viewed the sea as the source of evil. He assumes you remember what Job says, God tramples, Yahweh tramples over the waves of the sea. He assumes you know something about Daniel's vision of these four monsters, these four beasts that emerge out of the sea. And the latest monster on the scene is the Roman Empire represented by Tiberius who just wants to swallow up everything. And everybody has to either sink or swim in the sea of empire, but not Jesus because he's Lord and he just walks right on the top of it. I love that. And I think that's a meaning behind this story that we don't often see. And we need to think about that. But there's also a more personal way of reading this sign. When it's a dark and stormy night in your own life, you're not alone, Jesus will come to you. And when Jesus comes to you, everything's going to be all right. Can I just say that to everybody here this morning? Some of you, you're in this place right now, and you are in the middle of a dark and stormy night of some sort. And I just want to tell you from the perspective of our, of our eternal king, everything's going to be all right. Everything's going to be all right. Those of you that are in a dark and stormy night, you're trying to get somewhere. You're trying to get from one side to the other. You're trying to get somewhere, but it's a dark and stormy night, and it's rough. It's hard going. And your hands are blistered on the oars, and you're trying as hard as you can. You're trying so hard, but it feels like you're not getting anywhere. You're just spinning in circles. It's a dark and stormy night, and you're trying to get somewhere, but you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. You feel like you're making no progress. You're not even sure where you are. You've lost your bearings. In the midst of the chaos, you're confused and you're disoriented. And you can't even see straight. You can't even see the shore. And you're thinking, what's going on here? It's scary. It's foreboding. It's difficult. It's hard. And you're trying to get there. And in your moment of panic, you finally cry out in terror because you think, this could really go bad for me. This could really be the end of it all. And in the midst of your most desperate moment, Jesus says, hey, it's me. I'm here. I'm with you. I've come to you. Don't be afraid. And I feel like Jesus wants to say that to every person here, but there are particular people here this morning that Jesus especially wants to meet with you right now in this moment and not just tell you. He wants, he wants to help you feel and experience the reality that I'm with you. I'm here with you. I've come to you. Don't be afraid. Yeah, it's a dark and stormy night. You're worried that these dark waves are going to swallow you up. But he says, look, I'm on top of it. I've won the eternal victory. And, and this, your situation is under my feet. I'm on top of it. And I've come to you and I am for you. And it's going to be all right. One way or another. 
And in your relief and in your joy, you invite Jesus into your situation. That's your boat. You invite Jesus into your boat. And you just stop rowing. You stop striving. You stop trying. I mean, you're so relieved. You're, you're just suddenly so relaxed. You're so happy. You've stopped rowing. You've been rowing for hours and hours and hours. There are blisters and calluses. Your fingers are bleeding. And you've been frightened. And in the panic, in the moment of crisis, you cry out. But Jesus comes and speaks to you and says, hey, don't be afraid. It's me. I'm here. And it's going to be all right. And just a flood of relief comes over your soul. And you let Jesus into your boat. And you even stop trying because you're not even really thinking about trying. You're just thinking, man, I'm so happy Jesus is with me. We're still in the middle of it. We're still in the middle of this dark and stormy night. But Jesus is with me, so it's all right. And then all of a sudden, boom, you hit something. You're like, what was that? And Jesus says, we're here. And you're like, yeah, but Jesus, we were so far away. And he says, I know, we're here now. But how did this happen? How did we get here so quickly? And Jesus is like, I don't know. And he just winks at you. I don't know, shortcut. And we're here. Have you ever, have you ever had an experience kind of like that? There's been a couple times in my life where I would say, I know something about what these guys are experiencing. You ever had a, a moment like that where you're trying to get from one side to the next and you've been trying and trying and striving and striving and striving and there just comes to a point where you're like, I'm at the end of my rope. All this rowing, all this striving, all this trying and it's not doing any good, I'm not getting anywhere. And in your desperation you cry out and you have an experience, maybe in prayer, maybe in worship, maybe it's in a moment, maybe it's protracted over a few days, but you just have this experience with Jesus. And Jesus comes to you, he visits with you, and, and you just stop rowing for a moment. You stop trying and striving because you're just so happy to have a moment with Jesus, a moment of peace, a moment of calmness, a moment of assurance. And the moment you stop trying, boom, you open your eyes and like, man, it looks like I'm at the dock of Capernaum. This is where I've been trying to get to all night long, all throughout this dark and stormy night. I've been rowing and rowing and rowing. But the moment I just invited Jesus into my situation and I stopped striving, boom, we're there. I was suddenly there. And I just want to pray for some folks this morning. How many of you are here? How many of you would just be honest and say, Ryan, Ryan, right now I'm going through a dark and stormy night of some form in my life. Yeah. It's okay. Nobody's going to judge you. We all do. And I just want us to pray. Would you close your eyes for just a moment? I want us to enter into a space of just contemplative prayer. I want you to just take a deep breath. And we're going to give God the opportunity and the space and the time here to just meet with you, to visit with you, to encounter you in a fresh way. And let's just ask Jesus right now, even in this moment, let's just ask Jesus to come to us. You might even right now, just under your breath, just personally invite him and say, Jesus. Just say his name, Jesus. Jesus, come to me. Come to me, Lord. Here we are. We're, we're in this situation. We feel threatened by it. We're overwhelmed. It's so foreboding. It's so dark. It's so stormy. It's so rough. Our muscles are sore from straining and trying. 
Our hands are blistered. We've been trying so hard, we can't even see the shore. The sea is tumultuous. We feel like it could just swallow us up. Jesus, come to us. Jesus, come to us. And I just want you to hear Jesus speaking to you right now. And he says, I'm here. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm right here. I'm right here. It's possible this whole thing was just a setup. I think Jesus, sometimes he knew all along that it was going to go down just like this because we have to learn, we have to go through these things. We have to learn these things. Not just theological truths in our minds, but we've got to sometimes experience these truths. We've got to learn that Jesus will never forsake us and that he'll always come to us. And in our moments of terror, when we're screaming, it's a ghost, we're doomed, death is on the prowl. But no, 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 Jesus is right there. And he says, it's me. Do not be afraid. So Jesus, we invite you into our boat. You might even just let your imagination get the best of you right now and put yourself right there in the middle of that sea. And Jesus, we invite you into our situation that we find so threatening, so overwhelming. And we receive you, Jesus, into this situation with relief, with gladness, with joy. Just take another deep breath. Just sense and feel the peace of God come over you. We receive you, Jesus. Just see Jesus in your mind's eye. Just see Jesus climbing into that boat, sitting down there right beside you. Maybe you feel his hand on your shoulder. He gives your shoulder a gentle squeeze. And he says, it's going to be all right. And in your relief, you just sort of let go of the oars and you just relax. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And now, Lord, we prepare our hearts to come to this table. To find you, Jesus, not only in our boat, but to find you on this table. To eat this bread and to drink from this cup and have fellowship with your body and blood. Lord, we, Lord, we, we thank you so much that you offer yourself to us in so many ways. But today in this moment, you're offering yourself in this bread and in this cup. You're offering us your life. So we come boldly to the table to receive grace and to find mercy. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.